0: Welcome to Season 6, Episode 18 of They Walk Among Us A podcast dedicated to UK true crime This episode contains distressing themes Mature language and descriptions of violence this podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. To hear ad free versions of our episodes a few days before their general release, head to patreon.com forward slash they walk among us. They walk among us as part of the Acast Creator Network. The blood is the life. I have drunk the blood and it shall be mine. For I have seen horror. This handwritten passage penned by Alan Menzies was found among his things when Lothian and Borders Police searched his home. It had been just over a week since the villagers of Fulte House rang in the new year and another week that Thomas McKendrick was still missing. It was entirely out of character for him to remain out of contact with relatives for so long, especially as he had missed his sister's birthday and Christmas. He was last spotted on Wednesday, December 11th, 2002, but had not been seen or heard from since. Thomas left the home he shared with his family without saying goodbye. He was heard speaking to someone he appeared to know. Thomas was described as white. He had a shaved head, blue eyes and stood five feet eleven inches tall. There were few details on precisely what Thomas was wearing, apart from blue jeans and black boots. He had a prominent scar on one of his arms. Thomas received an employment support allowance on a regular basis, although recent checks had not been collected. Thomas frequently travelled five and a half miles south from his home to an old disused quarry known as Leavenseat. He was a ferreter. And accompanied by his companions, they would go hunting for rabbits together. One of his friends, Stuart Hunwin, described to a reporter for the Scottish Daily Record that Thomas was reserved. Still, he was trusting, often taking people at their word without question. Another friend, Derek Hilson, said of Thomas, he was a very quiet lad who wouldn't say boo to a goose. After the alarm was raised and each agonising week passed without a word, detectives slowly came to the conclusion that Thomas had not disappeared of his own free will, so Lothian and Borders Police made an appeal to the public for information. The prevailing theory implied whatever had transpired took place in the House area, the answers officers sought would most likely be found in the local vicinity. Bald House, located in West Lothian, Scotland, is around an hour's drive southwest from Edinburgh. Numerous coal heaps and disused mine buildings are scattered throughout the village, a reminder of its legacy though over the years the countryside has since been reshaped by overgrown woodland and wildlife, abundant in the parks and moorland. A path used by dog walkers and exercise enthusiasts cuts through the rural landscape, beginning at the Fold House Community Centre. In their search to trace the missing 21-year-old, Officers went door-to-door throughout the village where Thomas McKendrick lived with his mother, Sandra French, and sister, Sandra Mary. His father had since passed away. Thomas's family held out hope that he might return home unharmed. However, the likelihood of a positive outcome seemed remote when an unsettling discovery was made following a fingertip search. A bag of bloody clothing was discovered in the woods. Concern for Thomas's welfare was escalating. Almost two dozen officers operating out of Bathgate Police Station were of the opinion that he had almost certainly come to harm, and murder was the most likely scenario. It was confirmed the bloody belongings were owned by Thomas, and matched what he was last seen wearing. The police searched high and low for Thomas McKendrick, and the inquiry's efforts stepped up again. It was on Saturday, January 18th, 2013, when a team searching some dense woodland came upon a clearing. Located behind the Foldhouse House Community Centre, Police Constable Kenneth Gray saw something poking out of the earth. On closer inspection, PC Gray realised it was a human hand and barely visible through the dirt, the officer could also see part of a forearm. It was there in a shallow grave that Thomas McKendrick's mutilated body was found. He had been badly beaten and stabbed in the face, neck and torso. There was no question that Thomas had been the victim of a severe prolonged assault with a heavy weapon and then a bladed article. But it was puzzling as the community centre was popular among locals. How could no one have heard anything given the nature of the attack? Could Thomas have been assaulted elsewhere before his body was taken to the scene and buried? The media suggested that he may have been coaxed to the woods under false pretenses. One of his friends who did not divulge his name told the press that Thomas was quote really mad keen on his ferrets and if someone told him there was a good place to use them in the woods, he would have gone without suspecting anything. Once Thomas was isolated, it was theorised that he was attacked. More speculation by reporters implied that he might have been killed after he was propositioned. As soon as the assailant's advances were abuffed, a brutal murder occurred. Thomas McKendrick was last seen with a man known only by the name of Andy, and police had struggled to track him down. It appeared that the fact Thomas' body was in a state of undress when it was found seemed to cause a great deal of speculation about a sexual motive. On the hunt for the person of interest they knew only as Andy, officers from Lothian and Borders Police had been seen at both the local quarry where Thomas hunted rabbits with his ferrets and a property on Lanrig Avenue near to where Thomas lived. After the discovery on that January weekend, the police would not divulge any further details of what they had learned. When approached for comment about what happened, Thomas McKendrick's mother spoke of her devastation and shock. She told a reporter for the Scottish Herald that she had, quote, Feared the worse the longer Tommy was missing. I had really given up hope of him ever being found alive. Sandra Mary, Thomas's older sister, said, Now we will have to come to terms with the fact we will never see him again. With theories abound, it was suggested by some reporters that Thomas McKendrick's death could be linked to another murder. Robert Higgins' semi-naked body was found in a quarry eight years earlier at the start of May 1995. The factory worker employed at Marshall's Chunky Chickens in Newbridge had been stabbed to death. Higgins' trousers had been pulled down and the clothing that covered the upper half of his body had been pulled up. However, police ruled out a sexual motive for the killing. The scene was just over 13 miles northeast of Thomas McKendrick's home in Fuld House. Higgins, a 35 year old from West Lothian, had been missing for a few days before his body was discovered near Kirkliston by a father and son who were hunting rabbits. Robert Higgins left the home he shared with his elderly mother. On Thursday, April 27, 1995. Higgins spent part of the evening drinking in South Queens Ferry, and the group he was with moved on to Main Street in Kirkliston. A CCTV camera had recorded Higgins as he walked Main Street with another individual. His last known movements were in the early hours of Friday, April 28 although then authorities were not sure if he was still alive past this point. He never returned home to Dalmeny in South Queensferry, West Lothian. At the time of his disappearance, press reports describe Robert Higgins as five feet nine inches tall. He had a slim build, with short-receding light brown hair and two missing front teeth. A plaster covered his nose, as he had been headbutted during an unrelated altercation while out that same night. Robert Higgins enjoyed his own company, but he was trusting, often gladly purchasing a drink for people he did not know. Toxicology testing was completed, and Higgins had a blood alcohol level consistent with someone that had consumed 10 pints of lager. He did not fight back during the attack and was likely subdued as his body exhibited no signs of defensive wounds. There was no indication of a struggle. The fatal injury was a single puncture wound to the lung with a short-bladed weapon that caused internal bleeding. Authorities believed the killer lived locally. Locally. A £5,500 reward was offered, but no one was charged until many years later. During the investigation into the killing of Thomas McKendrick, following his disappearance at the end of 2002, the police did not say a word about the suspect they had in their crosshairs. Officers had searched the home of another man in his early 20s who they believed was somehow involved in Thomas' death. But the suspect did not turn out to be called Andy. It was one of Thomas McKendrick's lifelong friends, Alan Menzies. The pair had known each other since they were four, growing up together in the village where they lived. ...remaining friends through life's ups and downs. Most publicly available accounts detail their relationship as amicable... ...although there is some speculation that perhaps Thomas was more scared of his friend than he let on. Alan Menzies had not been completely honest with police when questioned about Thomas' disappearance... Menzies said he had spoken with Thomas on the phone after December 11th, although officers could find no evidence this call ever took place. Unnervingly, it was reported that Menzies had also approached Thomas McKendrick's mother in the local supermarket, a few weeks after her son went missing. He asked her if she knew how to get bloodstains out of clothing. Thomas McKendrick's body would be found several weeks after this interaction. And what's more, between the period of the killing and his eventual arrest, Alan Menzies unsuccessfully attempted to take his own life. He woke up in hospital to plenty of questions from the authorities. Police had searched his home a week before Thomas's body was found and it was there they came upon some concerning material. Detective Constable Stephen McCormick would later explain to the press what the officers discovered. It was apparent that Alan Menzies was obsessed with vampires. Along with other media centred on the fictional Creatures of the Night was a worn VHS copy of the 2002 gothic horror film Queen of the Damned, It was based on the literary work of Anne Rice. Among Menzies' collection, there were numerous books on vampire literature that included a copy of Blood and Gold, part of the Vampire Chronicles series also written by Anne Rice. As the police flipped through the pages of the book, they found numerous notes penned by Menzies. In one passage, he wrote, The master will come for me, and he has promised to make me immortal, for I will do as they command. A further note read, I have chosen my fate to become a vampire. Blood is much too precious to be wasted on humans. Also included in Menzies' belongings were cuttings from True Crime magazine, an article titled Satanic Slaughter, and a copy of Leon, a 1994 film about a hitman who hesitantly cares for a 12-year-old, teaching her everything he knows as she plans to avenge her slaughtered family. After his arrest, police came to learn that Alan Menzies had a criminal record. He had received a fine of £300 for breaching the peace and when he was 14 he was sectioned for three years at St Mary's Kenmure, a secure unit for young people at Bishop Briggs in Glasgow. There Menzies wrote a suicide note before attempting to take his own life with material torn from his pyjamas. Staff managed to intervene. Before he was sectioned, Not only had Menzies assaulted a member of his own family, but furthermore he stabbed a fellow pupil. In the attack on school grounds armed with a hunting knife, Menzies severely injured a boy he had been taunting for some time. The victim received a deep slash to his arm and was stabbed in the torso. Unbelievably, the wound was not fatal. Menzies fled to his grandmother's where he was living at the time. The police subsequently arrived to find him locked in his bedroom. Outside of school, Menzies had taken pleasure in killing animals with his bare hands before skinning them with the same knife he used in the school attack. and the police arrived at the property where Alan Menzies was living on January 11th, 2003. It was clear he had made attempts to clean up his bedroom. Some bloodstains would later be uncovered. Police believe Thomas McKendrick had been invited to Menzies' home on Lanrig Avenue in Fould House before the brutal attack occurred. The victim's body was at first put into a wheelie bin outside the property where it briefly stayed until it was transported in the early hours to the spot where it would ultimately be found. A witness who would later testify said that he had spoken with Alan Menzies and was told he would never see Thomas again. Stuart Unwin, a friend to both the victim and the alleged killer, later informed a journalist for the Scottish Daily Record about a conversation with Menzies after Thomas McKendrick went missing. Quote, He said he had bumped him off, but he was laughing, and I took it he was joking. Alan Menzies was arrested on January 20th, 2003, two days after Thomas McKendrick's body was found. The trial of Alan Menzies began on Monday, September 29, 2003. Due to his fascination with vampires, Menzies had been labelled the Dracula killer by the press. Menzies had offered a guilty plea to culpable homicide on the grounds of diminished responsibility. This was not accepted by the Crown. Used in the Scottish court system, Culpable homicide is a separate term that is neither connected to death by accident nor murder, but indicates a killing that does not involve either intent or premeditation. Before entering a courtroom, Alan Menzies said that he wanted to be treated in a state hospital, namely Carstairs, rather than a prison. This was somewhere that Menzies had been previously treated for five months. Alan Menzies' counsel, Donald MacLeod, told the jury at Edinburgh High Court that along with denying a charge of murder, his client would also be denying a charge of attempting to defeat the ends of justice. The defendant suggested Thomas McKendrick's body was hidden by two other people, Menzies' father and his friend Stuart Unwin, both of whom would be testifying at the trial. Menzies would later tell the court that he had not initially informed police of his father's alleged involvement as he did not want to get him into trouble. A jury of 15, six men and nine women would hear the case against Alan Menzies. In Scottish law to obtain a majority verdict, eight jurors need to reach the same conclusion. Jurors also have the option to decide on a third verdict rather than guilty or not guilty, this being not proven. While this carries the same outcome for the defendant as not guilty, meaning they walk free, the verdict can be chosen when jurors believe that the evidence presented was inadequate to reach a guilty verdict, but they still feel the defendant was guilty. A single witness to a crime, including the admission from the culprit themselves, is not enough to provide the basis of a conviction. A corroborating source independent from the other needs to be produced. This is something distinctive to Scottish law. A jury at the High Court in Edinburgh were told after stabbing Thomas McKendrick Alan Menzies hit him over the head with a weapon. Menzies then continued to stab the victim in the torso, throat and brain. There were 42 puncture wounds in all and 10 blows from a heavy object. The body was concealed in a makeshift grave, found just over five weeks after the killing two police officers had heard Alan Menzies describe elements of his crimes, along with him admitting to drinking the blood of the victim and eating their flesh and pieces of their skull. Detective Constable Robert Lowe was tasked with transporting Menzies from Livingston Police Station to his initial court appearance on January 22nd. DC Lowe was travelling with another officer, and when they asked Menzies how he thought the court appearance would go, the defendant allegedly said, I'm going to get 20 to 25 years for doing him with a hammer and my bowie knife, but I have got his soul. Although the officer told Menzies to stop speaking and cautioned him, Menzies continued describing the crime. D.C. Lowe spoke about what happened in court and was questioned by Menzies' counsel. D.C. Lowe did not know what to say at the time of the admission. Menzies seemed unfazed by the words he was speaking. The officer felt Menzies was utterly devoid of emotion. Friend to the defendant, Stuart Unwin who had spoken with Alan Menzies before his arrest, also offered testimony. Menzies was almost certainly emotionally intense during their discussions. Unwin described the defendant as, quote, twisted. He was in a very happy mood or a very angry mood, which could change from minute to minute. the precise nature of Alan Menzies' mental state would be placed under the microscope during the trial. Before his arrest, he had worked as a security guard. He would while away the hours of his free time reading or watching violent films about vampires, Nazis and serial killers. Menzies would watch the same films over and over again on a loop. It was reported by the media that Menzies had abused both alcohol and drugs in the past, although this would later be disputed by his mother in court documents. In discussing his interests with friend Stuart Unwin, Menzies frequently mentioned killer Matthew Hardman. The teenager from Anglesey had been convicted of murder after he stabbed Mabel Lation to death. The elderly woman then had her heart cut out and Hardman drank her blood. Hardman, who was also obsessed with vampires, felt that by drinking the blood of his victims he could become immortal. Without an ounce of compassion, Alan Menzies matter-of-factly remarked to his friend that it would have been a waste of time if Hardman had not drunk her blood. Menzies spoke of how he admired the young killer before taking a life himself. Thomas Menzies would testify about the communication with his son following the defendant's arrest. Alan Menzies' father explained to the court that he received a letter in which his son wrote that he wanted to kill again. It was addressed to one of the characters from the film Queen of the Damned. Part of the correspondence written from a jail cell read, Dear Akasha, everything is going as planned. I will kill for you again soon. These humans are nothing but animals. Fodder for us. On the letter was also written the word vamp, but in a different colour from the pen ink. It looked as though it had been written in blood. After the defendant was arrested, he spoke with his father and said he was innocent. In my heart, I wanted to believe him, Thomas Menzies testified. In my mind, I just didn't know what to think after Rallon had taken an overdose. Menzies had attempted to take his own life before he was taken into custody. Thomas Menzies described his son's home life and the lead-up to the events of December 2002. The witness and his wife had separated when their son was 19. Alan Menzies decided to stay with his father from then on. His behaviour had always been unpredictable. Menzies' violent, erratic outbursts were difficult to control. He would frequently sit on the floor rocking back and forth, making strange noises. Thomas Menzies believed there were two sides to his son's mental state. One that resembled the boy he knew, and the other which seemed obsessed with vampires, Alan Menzies had become withdrawn in the months leading up to the crime. His father was growing more concerned as his son was conversing with himself, sometimes screaming and shouting when he was alone in his bedroom. In spite of his actions... When he was young, Alan Menzies would be described as a lovely boy by his mother, Linda. He always struggled with change in any element of his life, and when these instances occurred, he would become uncontrollable. Menzies had attempted to take his life almost half a dozen times, swallowing fistfuls of tablets. He frequently said he wanted to die. As he got older, Menzies barely left his bedroom. He developed an obsession with keeping it clean. It was also in a perpetual state of darkness. The windows were always covered. Menzies' circle of friends was small as he was challenging to be around. No one knew what he would do next. He often lost his temper when playing computer games, a hobby shared with one of his only friends, Thomas McKendrick. The two had also bonded over their interest in ferrets, which they would take out when hunting. Menzies frequently spoke to himself, but when he decided to converse with anyone else, the topic of conversation almost always focused on the morbid and fantastic specifically vampires
1: How would you like to look 5 years younger In a clinical study people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking 5 years younger at 6 months after treatment Look younger feel like you Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
0: Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first
1: purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm
1: here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news...
0: Why exactly Alan Menzies decided to end the life of Thomas McKendrick was a question that everyone was asking, but finding an answer did not come easy. When first interviewed, Menzies initially explained that he committed the killing as Thomas had made an insulting remark about a character in the film Queen of the Damned. Thomas McKendrick had loaned Menzies a copy of the film in August 2002, which Menzies had watched religiously. The defendant would claim that during a conversation with Thomas McKendrick in the kitchen of Menzies' home, Thomas's life was ended because he used a racial slur when describing the main character Akasha, performed by late US singer Aaliyah. While in some interviews with police, Menzies said he could not remember what happened next. In others, he professed that Akasha, the vampire queen, had apparently been the one to order the killing after supposedly visiting Menzies in his bedroom. She allegedly spoke to him often. According to Menzies, Akasha offered him immortality and to become a vampire in the next life. In return for the souls of the people he killed. Publicly available accounts of what precisely happened next are inconsistent, but what can be extracted from the detail is that the pair were talking in Menzies' kitchen. On the kitchen tabletop was a Bowie knife which Menzies used while hunting. Thomas McKendrick supposedly insulted the character of Akasha and then questioned Menzies' belief in vampires. Furious, Menzies took the knife and stabbed his friend, who fled upstairs to Menzies' bedroom and locked the door behind him. He was pursued by Menzies, who was now armed with a hammer. He kicked the door open and then carried out the killing, striking Thomas McKendrick on the head before the attack continued on Thomas's lifeless body. Dr James Hendry, a consultant psychiatrist who then had almost two decades of experience in his field of expertise, interviewed Alan Menzies several times in the lead-up to the trial. Notes were taken from the consultations that took place both before and after Menzies was charged. The first interview was carried out only a matter of days after Menzies' suicide attempt in January 2003. The second interview followed a short time later. Dr Hendry came to learn that Menzies preferred they did not use his first name of Alan. Instead, he wanted to be referred to as Leon, a character from a film he had also watched countless times. Menzies did this to honour the protagonist from the film of the same name. When asked about what he did in his spare time, Menzies told the doctor that he would turn all the lights out and lay motionless on the floor. He spoke of his fascination with vampires and his desire to meet one, although according to Menzies he was disappointed to learn that there were none in the hospital where he was treated. Following the interviews with the defendant, Dr Hendry came to the conclusion that since Menzies was a child, he had an abnormal personality, living in a fantasy world of his own making. Advocate Deputy Andrew McMillan questioned the expert witness about Menzies' mental state at the time of the killing. Dr Hendry did not believe that Menzies was mentally ill and could find no evidence of this during the conversations with the defendant. Menzies did not seem to care either way about what the doctor thought, and he made no attempts to be perceived as mentally unwell during their two interviews. Even when pressed, Dr Hendry would not be drawn into the argument as to whether or not the defendant was using mental illness as an excuse for his actions. Donald McLeod, counsel for the defence, told the jury that his client was suffering from a, quote, slow-moving form of paranoid schizophrenia. This was not, however, something the experts who took the stand on behalf of the prosecution agreed with. To further consultant forensic psychiatrist concluded that Menzies was not suffering any form of alienation of reasoning. Dr. Colin Gray admitted that he could not completely rule out the possibility of some form of mental illness. Still, he did feel that someone with schizophrenia would present symptoms of the condition while they were being treated in the hospital, something that Menzies had not. Dr. Derek Chiswick also did not believe that Menzies was suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. However, the defendant did have an antisocial personality disorder. Dr. Chiswick felt it might be possible that Menzies had ulterior motives for coming up with stories of a vampire telling him to kill. Quite, it does occur to me as one possibility that they are manufactured to avoid conviction for a crime of murder. The other possibility is they are used by him to psychologically cope with an appalling and horrific act of violence that perhaps he cannot explain himself. Dr Chiswick added, I suspect his enjoyment of violence is the principal factor in the prolonged and excessively violent nature of this crime. It was acknowledged that Menzies was a vivid fantasist, All three of the experts believed him to be a psychopath. Alan Menzies was offered the opportunity to argue his case when he took the stand. He repeated much of what he had previously divulged, specifically that Menzies had been visited by a character from Queen of the Damned, who had promised him eternal life if he ended someone else's. According to Menzies, Akasha, the character of a vampire queen, became his god. Menzies said he had seen the film Queen of the Damned at least 100 times. Describing his visions, the defendant testified, In general terms, she started off having conversations with me. And it ended up that I had basically agreed with her that if I murdered people, I would be rewarded in the next life. I would be made immortal in the next life. A vampire, basically. Menzies became paranoid and felt that two of his friends, Stuart Unwin, a witness at the trial, and the victim, Thomas McKendrick, had plotted to end his life. Menzies told the jury that he had heard voices about their plans in his head. One day in December 2002, when Thomas McKendrick was visiting Menzies' home, they were discussing Queen of the Damned, and Thomas had allegedly insulted the character of Akasha. Menzies claimed that he could see her, plain as day. She apparently did not say anything, only offering an aggrieved, then disapproving look. Menzies testified that Akasha was angry and he had let her down. He felt Thomas McKendrick had gotten away with insulting her. and supposedly spurred the killing, during which time Menzies employed a knife and a hammer. Menzies' counsel, Donald McLeod, asked his client if he believed he was a vampire. Menzies said he did. McLeod then said, ''Do you believe that you will gain immortality?'' ''Yes,'' Menzies replied. ''Do you believe that you achieve that by killing Thomas?'' ''Yes,'' Menzies repeated.'' There had been three doctors who testified that they did not believe that Alan Menzies was suffering from any form of abnormality of mind. However, a former psychiatric consultant who spoke on behalf of the defence disagreed, believing that the defendant was suffering from a split personality. Alexander Cooper pointed out that it was essential to focus on his conclusion that Menzies killed Thomas McKendrick for insulting the character from the film, not that he was ordered to. Cooper testified, There is much evidence that he is suffering from severe personality problems. In my opinion, he suffers from an antisocial personality disorder and also has unexplained voices in his head. He is therefore suffering from hallucinations and a psychotic illness most commonly known as paranoid schizophrenia. The retired psychiatric consultant concluded, It would be my opinion that there might be grounds for a plea of diminished responsibility in this case. Alan Menzies was not afraid to recount the killing in graphic detail. He obeyed the Vampire Queen's supposed commands, ending the life of Thomas McKendrick before eating pieces of flesh and bone. After he had moved Thomas's body onto its side, Menzies cut his victim's throat and watched as the blood dripped into a whiskey glass. He raised it to his lips. I looked in the mirror to make sure my teeth were covered, he said. After the attack, Menzies listened to some music, watched a film and fed his ferrets. The jury were told that while on remand, the character Akasha continued to visit Menzies. Akasha was telling Menzies that his father was trying to poison him and he should continue killing. She supposedly demanded more blood, more killing, but Menzies did not follow her orders. Menzies told the court that Akasha had expressed a belief that the entire legal proceedings were going to be set up. Both Judge Roderick MacDonald and the jury were working on behalf of the prosecution. The defendant was asked if he felt remorseful about what had happened. He said he felt sorry for Thomas McKendrick's mother and sister, but that is as far as it went. He did not regret what he did because he was given instructions on what to do. People try and tell me she wasn't real and I couldn't hear her. But that's bullshit, he said. Staff at the hospital where he was treated did not believe him. Menzies said that one nurse was even, quote, pissing himself laughing. While Alan Menzies was in prison, His aunt, Sandra Hamilton, went to visit him. Menzies had lived with her during a brief period in his early teens. The witness said her nephew exhibited strange behaviour and occasionally would snap with a violent outburst. During Sandra Hamilton's prison visit with Menzies, he described his visions and his aunt told her nephew that she refused to believe that he was evil. Menzies responded that the killing was a way of getting back at God, because of what God had done to him. His closing remarks were heard before the jury retired, Advocate Deputy Andrew McMillan was quick to point to the fact that there were three expert psychiatrists testifying for the prosecution and one for the defence. McMillan said this should persuade the jury to reject the suggestion that the defendant's responsibility for the killing was diminished. From the dock, Menzies seemed to believe he was a vampire and the killing had provided him with eternal life. He would claim that, quote, at the end of the day, I knew I would have to murder somebody anyway. It was the only way you could do it. If you don't murder somebody, you couldn't become a vampire. The jury's deliberations followed a week-long trial. They would reach a decision on the two charges in 90 minutes. They had been told there were glimpses of Menzies' violent impulses during his childhood. Menzies was diagnosed with an antisocial personality disorder by all of the consultant psychiatrists who assessed him. The medical experts testifying for the prosecution felt the defendant was of sound mind when the killing occurred. But Menzies argued that he was a paranoid schizophrenic, a claim backed up by a single psychiatrist testifying on behalf of the defense. Judge Roderick MacDonald had cautioned the jury. If you think the accused was lying when he reported experiences of hallucinations, there could be no diminished responsibility in these circumstances. Ultimately, every single juror did not believe that Alan Menzies' mental state was affected enough to lessen his responsibility for the killing. This was despite Menzies' claim that a vampire queen who had visited him in his bedroom ordered him to carry out the murder in exchange for immortality. The jury also believed that Menzies had attempted to cover up his crimes a conviction of murder, Alan Menzies was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term of 18 years. The 21-year-old was also sentenced to three years for being found guilty of attempting to defeat the ends of justice. This would run concurrently with his life sentence. Menzies would only see the outside world once a parole board considered him no longer a threat to the public. As he stood in the dock, the now convicted murderer appeared wholly detached from everything that was going on around him. He did not look upset, did not look reproachful, did not seem angry. Before he was walked to his cell to begin his sentence, Menzies was branded evil, violent and highly dangerous by the judge, who described the crimes as an abomination for which the killer had shown no remorse. Thomas McKendrick's family were interviewed and his sister Sandra Mary said that Menzies got what he deserved. He was not mentally ill, she said. It was just an act. Sandra Mary had spoken with the press along with her mother and they came to learn of the discovery of Thomas' body. They said they were pleased with the verdict handed down. Thomas McKendrick's mother, Sandra French, offered her thoughts as if she was speaking directly to the killer. "'I'll never be able to forgive or forget the horrific things I've heard. "'Why did you have to take my Thomas?' So where are we now? Since Robert Higgins' body was found on May 1st, 1995, his murder had remained unsolved. Lothian and Borders Police came to the conclusion that Alan Menzies was not involved. There were numerous theories published by the press, from hired hit men and debt collectors to a wife swapping party gone wrong and even a random attack following a Laurel and Hardy convention. An appeal was made on BBC's Crime Watch, but without much success. The murder weapon was eventually found, but frustratingly, it was picked up by an unsuspecting elderly lady who was unaware of what had happened. She cleaned the blade and used it in her kitchen until the realisation was made. But by then it was too late. Any trace of forensic evidence had been washed away. However, in spite of the passage of time, quite incredibly, an arrest was made eleven years after the murder and a suspect was charged. The police believed an individual called William Arthurs carried out the attack. He would have been in his early 20s at the time. According to a prosecutor, Arthurs had a history of assault and shouting threats of violence. DNA evidence was presented in court along with witness testimony. Arthurs had supposedly admitted to the killing several times when he was drunk and his DNA was discovered on a leather jacket found near the victim's body which apparently belonged to Arthurs. But when questioned by police, William Arthurs denied he knew who Robert Higgins was. There were also two other DNA profiles discovered on the leather jacket found at the scene. After a three-week trial, William Arthurs walked free when a jury at the High Court in Edinburgh reached a not-proven verdict. Robert Higgins' murder remains unsolved to this day. It had been just over one year and one month since Alan Menzies' trial. He was reportedly hoping to appeal his sentence. But on the morning of Monday, November 15th, 2004, Benzies was found unresponsive in his prison cell at HMP Shots in North Lanarkshire. The prisoner who claimed he had been granted immortality by a vampire queen had taken his own life. it was announced that a fatal accident inquiry would be undertaken. Still, the Scottish Prison Service would say no more at the time. A year and a half would pass before the findings were placed before Scottish Sheriff Vincent Smith. Sheriff Smith concluded that while Alan Menzies was not a, quote, Normal prisoner. There were substantial failings, and Menzies' death could have been prevented. The Scottish Prison Service had made no effort to interview family members to obtain a first hand account of the inmate's history, nor order any medical records from the facilities where Menzies stayed that documented his mental health and previous suicide attempts. An assessment was also not completed when the prisoner was placed in a segregation unit, and when they gathered up shaving materials, prison staff did not collect a razor that had been given to the inmate. As the months had passed following Menzi's conviction, he had been asked if he had thoughts about hurting himself. He said he had not. Enzis was released into the general prison population, but rarely socialised with the other inmates. He became upset around a week before his death, as he was being relocated, moved from his cell in the induction centre. New long-term prisoners were being admitted, and this was where they began the initial period of incarceration following conviction so Menzies needed to be housed in a different cell block. He was distressed because he felt settled. Menzies' behaviour echoed that of his childhood and teenage years. He would often get upset if his circumstances changed. He did not seem unbalanced when he saw his mother for the final time. The only signs of trouble began when she asked about some marks on his wrists. These were later examined and they were considered superficial. It was concluded that they may have been caused by a fight or a deep self-inflicted scratch. When queries were raised by prison staff, Menzies said it was an accident. He was not agitated when questioned and seemed compliant, so no further action was taken. It was only when Menzies was due to move cells he picked up some broken glass and threatened to stab anyone that came near him. It was eventually agreed that he could be temporarily moved to the segregation unit rather than the new cell block, something that Menzies had apparently suggested. This was only a matter of days before his death. He was placed in an area that was soundproofed, without windows, and contained only a mattress and a toilet. Between the hours of 5pm on Sunday, November 14th to 8am on Monday, November 15th, he was unsupervised. During this period, using a torn bedsheet tied to a metal frame attached to the window, he took his own life. Alan Menzies had written the word justice in his own blood on the cell wall. From what could be gathered, it was understood he had been dead for a few hours, as a pool of blood had formed beneath his feet. A post-mortem was completed, and the forensic pathologist detailed their findings. These were summarised by Sheriff Vincent Smith, who concluded, quote, If it was any comfort, death could have occurred very quickly. Perhaps as quickly as 11 seconds after the ligature was applied. Alan Menzies was 23 years old. Thank you for listening and a special thanks to our Patreon supporters. Make sure you check out our brand new podcast series They Walk Among America covering tales of murder and mystery in the United States. Just search for They Walk Among America on your favourite podcast player. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com.